Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies. In the San Fernando Valley of the early 1970s, two young people forge a legendary friendship. If I asked for your phone number, would you give it to me? Why should I give you my phone number? So I can call you? I don't know, Gary. Co-workers vacillate between lust and hate while competing for a promotion. The job is mine, shortcake. Oh, your competence is compelling, but you forget one thing. Hmm? Everyone hates you. Oh, they don't hate me. They fear me, which makes me effective. You know, when I'm your boss, I will require you to do everything I say with a smile. The wife of a televangelist discovers unimaginable wealth may not be God's plan after all. God does not want us to be poor. Oh, oh, oh no. He, he will gift the faithful with eternal life, eternal love, and eternal wealth. Hallelujah! And a Scottish woman in Colombia experiences a kind of sonic disturbance. It's, um, it's, it's like a rumble from the core of the earth. Watching Licorice Pizza the other day, I was reminded that despite some pretty heavy films, there's always been a strand of comedy, or at least the absurd, running through the films of Paul Thomas Anderson. The I drank your milkshake conclusion to There Will Be Blood is profoundly odd. Phantom Thread, Daniel Day-Lewis's final film, has moments that are just brilliantly funny, often improvised alongside all that romantic tension. And we don't even need to talk about the frogs falling from the sky in Magnolia. Licorice Pizza has more than its share of those sorts of jaw-dropping moments, but it has something else that makes it a wonderfully watchable film in these troubled times. A sweetness, a lightness, a love for its characters. It's never less than delightful, but this time around the shadows are secondary rather than the point. It's set in the San Fernando Valley of 1972. The valley isn't Hollywood, but it's Hollywood adjacent. A classic American suburb with some delusions of grandeur, but also something tacky and try-hard about it. Our central character is 15-year-old Gary Valentine, a high school student and fading child actor. He's clearly not going to transition into a leading man, but he's put enough money away and sees himself as something of an entrepreneur. In the queue for his high school yearbook photo, he meets Alana, a dark-haired, 25-year-old working for the Tiny Toes photo studio who run the production line. Not short of confidence, Gary starts flirting with Alana and asks her out, eventually getting a commitment to meet for drinks at the Tale of the Cock bar in Encino. 
Even though he can only drink soda, he's a regular there. Like so many kids who have spent most of their lives operating in the adult world, he knows how to live inside all of the trappings. What are your plans? I don't know. What's your future look like? I don't know. How do you like working at Tiny Toes? I hate working at Tiny Toes. You should start your own business. <laughs> what business should I be in? I don't know. What do you like? I don't know. You're an actress. You should be an actress. <laughs> so how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. It's my calling. <sighs> I don't know how to do anything else. It's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance Come man. Come on. Ever since you were a kid. Song and dance man. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does, that in my public sense. relations company. In your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent, too. <laughs> well, no, I'm not a secret agent. <laughs> That's funny. Gary is a debut for Cooper Hoffman, the son of P.T. Anderson regular, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. May he rest in peace. And the apple has not fallen too far from the tree there. Alana is played by rock musician Alana Heim, and this is her first time on screen playing someone who isn't herself. Anderson has always been an actor's director, but by casting relative unknowns like this, we can also see the skill that he brings. Chemistry is not easily discovered or nurtured in inexperienced actors, but there's bucket loads to spare here. Perhaps it's because of what seems like an incredibly relaxed family atmosphere on set. Looking through the cast list, there are a couple of Spielberg children, a Demi, a couple of Giacchinos, a handful of Rudolphs. Maya Rudolph has a cameo and she's been Anderson's partner since forever. There's lots of fun cameos by friends of the director, including Leonardo DiCaprio's dad, George, and Tom Waits. But most delicious of all is that Alana's family are played, in their entirety, by the real Alana's family, Este and Danielle from the band Heim, and their parents, Moti and Donna. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? I, he was maybe going to be my boyfriend. Listen, young lady, you don't bring this idiot to Shabbat dinner here. Listen, Dad, he's an atheist and an actor, and he's famous. But he's Jewish. He was going to take me out of here, Esty. Don't you even look at me. Don't you even look at me. You're always oh. looking at me. I what are you didn't doing? Even say anything. What are you doing? What are you thinking, huh? I'm Essie. I work for mom and dad. I'm perfect. I'm a real estate agent. Alana doesn't have her life together. Alana brings home stupid boyfriends all the time. I mean, I knew it. I knew that was what you were thinking. You're always thinking things, you thinker. You thinker. You think things. I haven't talked too much about the plot so far, and that's because, frankly, there isn't that much. It's a summer of adventures for Gary, Alana and Gary's friends as he goes to New York to do a television show with someone who might be Lucille Ball. He starts a waterbed business, a pinball parlour and is almost arrested for murder. Meanwhile, Alana auditions for a movie with Jack Holden. As I've alluded to, many of the characters in the film are clearly based on real people, like Sean Penn as someone who could be the movie star William Holden. But some of the characters are actual real people, like the local politician Joel Wax, played by the co-director of the Adam Sandler film Uncut Gems, Benny Safdie, and the mercurial film producer John Peters, Bradley Cooper. 
It's just occurred to me how brilliant it is that Cooper, the director and star of the most recent version of A Star Is Born, should play the person who produced the 1974 version. It's so meta. Anyway, at this point, Peters is just a hairdresser with a famous girlfriend. All of that comes later. Do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. Sand. Sand, yeah, like sands. Like the ocean, like beaches. Barbara Streisand? No, like Streisand. Sand. Streisand. Streisand. Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. Licorice Pizza is rated M for offensive language sexual references and drug references and should also be rated 5 emoji love hearts for sheer charm. It's playing in selected cinemas across the country now. The job is mine, shortcake. Oh, your confidence is compelling, but you forget one thing. Hmm? Everyone hates you. Oh, they don't hate me. They fear me, which makes me effective. <laughs> you know, when I'm your boss, I will require you to do everything I say with a smile. When I'm your boss, I'm going to work you so hard that you start using the office as your home address. When I'm your boss, I will enforce casual Fridays. Wine shirts mandatory. Licorice Pizza might not have very much plot, even though lots happens, but the hating game has more than enough to go around. It's that rare beast these days, the rom-com. That's a romantic comedy for you younger listeners. They're the films where the formula is the point, where tiny nuances can provide the most satisfying moments, but where, if there's one factor that's not quite right, the whole conceit can crumble. The heyday, of course, was the late 80s and early 90s. Nora Ephron's Sleepless in Seattle, Notting Hill, You've Got Mail, and a film that the hating game conceptually resembles, even if they're miles apart in terms of execution, When Harry Met Sally. Charismatic movie stars in a constant state of will they or won't they. The romantic tension was palpable, and the endings were usually a satisfying combination of unpredictable denouement with an utterly predictable resolution. The hating game updates the formula by making it quite a bit more direct, it's certainly more libidinous than many of its predecessors, but my sense is that it has so many twists and turns that it wants to get through, it doesn't give us any time to really get to know its central characters. Who are? Attractive young publishing executive Lucy Hutton, played by Lucy Hale, and attractive young publishing executive Joshua Templeman, played by Austin Stowell. They've been forced to share an office, well, it's not really an office, more like an open-plan cage-match ring right by the elevators so everyone can see them, because of a merger between highbrow literary publisher Gammon and sports biography specialist Bexley's. Bexley people are macho and dismissive of anything except what sells. The Gammon people do yoga and hope for the best. Lucy, I am so glad that I caught you. I was hoping that I could ask you for, like, a tiny favour. I needed an extension on a monthly report. My new puppy ate peanut butter last night and she's totally allergic. She put the poo and cock-a-poo with you, you know what I mean? Sure, of course. You're the best. I have a Monday, Wednesday at the latest. That was pathetic. Er, who is Joshua Templeman? <laughs> you know, Lucinda, you could just tell her to do her job, but no, you have to be the good guy. It's a lot better than being the asshole. Happy Thanksgiving! Lucy and Josh are both being considered for a big promotion. At last, they can prove whichever one is best. 
But unfortunately, hormones are starting to get in the way. Lucy has an awkward dream about Josh, which for some reason she starts dropping hints about. And Joshua takes the opportunity to have a bit of a pash with Lucy in the lift. Consensual, we are assured, but followed by deep regret on both sides. What follows is an hour and a half of will they, won't they, will they, won't they, oh, they did, will they do it again, or won't they? Meanwhile, the shadow of the promotion looms over them both. Are they charming? It's hard to tell when what they say to each other can be really quite ugly and even misogynistic at times, but it is a two-way street. It travels in both directions. It's supposed to be banter, but it can have a nasty undercurrent. Hey, you all right? I'm fine. What are you doing here? You left your purse in my car. (sighs) Whatever. You win. They get in the other person's head game, okay? I mean, you somehow Jedi mind tricked me into kissing you when I should have just slapped your smug face. It's been a really good day for you. What? I made a mistake, okay? And if you want to report me to HR or... That's what you're worried about? Josh, a man just called me beautiful, and my first thought is to think that he's messing with me. Okay? I feel like I'm going crazy, so just please go home. Based on a popular novel by Canberra-based writer Sally Thorne, the film is executive produced by its two leads as a vehicle for them both. And the only actor that I was previously familiar with was Corbin Burnson as the boorish head of Bexley's, and I'd be surprised if he was on set for more than two days in total. It's not particularly interesting to look at, and the pacing is sitcom level, but at least it acknowledges the existence of sex, and especially of lust. It does kind of come to life during those scenes. Hale and Stowell are both young, fit and fetching, so I don't imagine there was too much angsting to get into character on those days. But their inner lives are just bundles of clichés looking for a character to find a home in. Screenwriter Christina Mengert and director Peter Hutchings need to trust us more. With rom-coms, we have to fall in love with both characters so that we can if you'll pardon the expression, root for them both. And that takes time. Yo, ho, ho. Who let you in the building? Oh, I scaled the wall using my elite Navy SEAL training. The neighbor let me in. What are you doing here? Picking you up. For my brother's wedding? (laughs) Yeah, not likely, Temple. I'm sorry about the other night. You caught me off guard. This thing is just too complicated. All right, We, we are competing for the same job. We've turned mutual sabotage into an art, so it is impossible to trust each other. Also, you're like the man version of Icy Hot. Are you cold? Are you warm? Is this tingling sensation nice, or is it deeply uncomfortable? Tingling sensation? Okay, you know what I mean. Look, I can't go to this thing alone, and they're expecting you to come with me. And don't forget, you still own me. Mm. I'll be in the car. The Hating Game is rated M for sex scenes, sexual references and offensive language and it's playing in mostly mainstream locations all over New Zealand now. You know, heaven, heaven is heaven, that is for sure, but God's hope for us is that we live and we thrive and we love here in the promised land, here and now, here and now and in this very, very moment. God does not want us to be poor. Oh, no. He, he will gift the faithful with eternal life, eternal love, and eternal wealth. Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise Him.
be right to remember, blessed be the poor, Mr. Baker. Doesn't sound very blessed to me. <laughs> it does appear that there will always be a market for modern nostalgia. There's a miniseries coming down the pipe about Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee's 1995 sex tape, for example. We do love it when our finest actors transform themselves into the freaks and gargoyles of yesteryear. Indeed, for many, it's the straightest path to an Oscar, or at least a Golden Globe. That was my entirely cynical take when I saw that on this week's docket was a biopic about the notorious evangelical fraudsters Jim and Tammy Baker, who took their lesson of the prosperity gospel and ended up in hock to mammon itself. Well, it turns out to be a classic rags-to-riches-to-rags story, a truly cautionary tale that I feel certain has some parallels to our own crazy times. What elevates the eyes of Tammy Faye above the schlocky fare it's easily compared with is the central performance from Jessica Chastain as Tammy. Bear with me when I tell you that it is thanks to Chastain that the eyes of Tammy Faye are genuinely windows into her soul. She was born Tammy Faye LaValle in rural Minnesota in 1942. Her mother was a divorcee, which meant that little Tammy, as the only child from the previous marriage, was not welcome at the local Pentecostal church. This was a source of shame for little Tammy, and she responds by slipping into the church one Sunday and falling into speaking in tongues, essentially taking center stage for the first time. As far as the rest of the church was concerned, she had established her bona fides. At Bible College, she meets Jim Baker, played by Andrew Garfield. He's looking to establish himself as a professional travelling pastor, with half an eye on the good life. She, as innocent as a lamb, falls for his fervour, as well as his 1950s-style decency. The fact that he was not often telling her the whole truth took decades to really land in her consciousness. The prosperity gospel that they espoused meant that God, in effect, runs a pyramid scheme where if the money keeps flowing upwards and you pray hard enough, then some of it might trickle back down again to you. As their careers take off, and the film suggests that Tammy was the creative force and talent behind their success, whether it was her puppets or her singing or her guileless down-hominess, they can see how their contemporaries are turning pledges into great lifestyles. Jim is terrible with money, which is why he keeps having to get more of it from his parishioners, or members as they call them. Their boom coincides with the greed is good conspicuous consumption 80s. Reagan is in the White House, and there's no such thing as too much money. Are you going to divorce me, Jim? I don't know. I should. But... God hates divorce. It ruined your mother. It'll do the same to you. You stop paying attention to me, Jim. You broke faith with me, Tammy. Gary, he told, he told me that I was beautiful and that I was talented and he wanted me, Jim. Don't touch me! Gary wanted me, Jim, in ways that you don't. Oh, my goodness. He was my friend. You know, I got a letter this week, Tammy. From the president. The president of the United States, Ronald Reagan himself, wrote me a personal letter thanking me for my support in his election. I'm an important man, Tammy Faye. 
And people don't treat important men the way that you treated me. I'm going to clear my head. I'm going to pray. I'm going to think about what I want. The fall was inevitable. Jim Baker was a truly terrible businessman and an even worse criminal. And in 1989, he was sentenced to 45 years in prison for fraud. He eventually served just eight and last year was accused of selling nutritional supplements that he claimed could cure COVID-19. Anyway, the film isn't really about Jim, which is lucky because in a rare misstep, Andrew Garfield isn't very good. He's certainly underpowered compared with the force of nature that is Chastain as Tammy. Maybe he's still too young. He uses the ageing makeup very early in the film. The Eyes of Tammy Faye is based on a documentary from 2000 that has the same name, and the producers of that film are two of the screenwriters here. The documentary was narrated by RuPaul, because by that time Tammy Faye had become something of an icon to the queer community, a living drag act, if you like. And unlike so many of her contemporaries in the evangelical community, Tammy Faye was not a bigot about these things. It's a patchy film, and the script is pretty by the numbers, but it's never less than watchable, and Chastain is superb. I'm not sure we've seen her stretched in quite this way in years. I don't want to debate you, Jerry. I love you. I love all of you guys. Re- Re- Reverend Falwell. Yeah. We love you too, Tammy Faye. <laughs> yes, we do. God is my witness. I made a pledge to continue to expose the sins in this country. The Bible explicitly forbids homosexuality. There's no gray area. Um, well, you know, I, I, I don't think of them as homosexuals. I just think of them as other human beings that I love. You know, we're all just people made out of the same old dirt. And God didn't make any junk. <laughs> the Eyes of Tammy Faye is rated M for drug use and sex scenes, and it's playing in limited sessions across Aotearoa, New Zealand, now. I think I'm going crazy. You are. Me too. It's not the worst thing to be. I've composed a poem. A poem of the sleepless nights. Beyond the petals and once furious wings, the air gasps at its fading shadow. Last week, a couple of things happened that seem instructive about the state of the movie business in early 2022. Firstly, the US box office dropped to its lowest point since the start of the pandemic. And secondly, this year's Sundance Film Festival was hugely successful, but entirely virtual. No trekking to Park City in the snow, and audiences from around the world were all able to take part on a roughly equal footing. 
It's clear that for mostly COVID reasons, wary patrons are staying home unless they feel they absolutely can't miss out on a big blockbuster release. They've come to trust that with release windows shortening, or in the case of Warner Brothers and HBO Max last year, eliminated completely, for most films they won't have long to wait before being able to watch a new picture in the comfort and safety of their own home. I have a theory about what might bring those audiences back to the cinemas, though. Most of us, if we bought a new telly in the last couple of years, will have bought the biggest our lounge room and finances could support. The big screen nature of cinematic entertainment is less of a draw than it used to be. But sound, that's a different story. At my house, especially in summer with the windows open, any movie we watch is competing with the sound of my next-door neighbour practising his drums, the Harley Davidson that regularly patrols up and down our street, the sirens from the motorway in the distance. Most of us don't have the ability to completely soundproof our living room or build a personal screening room, and I've seen a couple of films recently where the sound design is so distinctive and so important to the storytelling you are literally missing out on half the experience by trying to watch it at home. The perfect example of this right now is a picture pong where Asethical's Memoria. The filmmaker and his main collaborator, the actor Tilda Swinton, have said that the film will never be available on home video, streaming, download, or any non-theatrical avenue. And after you've seen it, you can see, or rather you can hear, why... The sound design is so subtle, so layered, so important to characterization and theme, and requires the removal of all audible distractions, that only in a cinema will this film really work. In fact, the inciting incident in the story is a sound. Tilda Swinton plays a Scottish flower wholesaler in Medellin, Colombia, visiting her sister, who is in hospital in the capital, Bogota. One morning she's woken by a loud bang. There appears to be no source for the sound, no construction work, no car accident. And over the next few days it happens several more times and she realises that no one else can hear it. It's a little bit like those American diplomats in Cuba who were convinced they were under some kind of psycho-auditory attack by the Russians but no one could find a source for what they were hearing. In this clip, Swinton's character visits a sound engineer at the university and tries to describe it so he can recreate it so that others might understand. It's in Spanish, but I hope you get the gist. Entonces, tu sonido no es una canción. No, es un sonido. Es difícil de explicar. ¿Y dónde lo escuchaste? En un cuarto. As the film goes on, the mysteries deepen. Despite a burgeoning friendship with the sound engineer, she returns to the university to find no one has heard of him. She goes home to Medellin and meets a man scaling fish by the side of a stream who has the same name as the sound engineer. We're increasingly becoming aware that Swinton's character isn't having a psychological breakdown necessarily, but may just be experiencing some other planes of the universe, Layers not normally available to the rest of us because we don't operate on the correct frequencies. But are these other dimensions of existence parallel to ours? Or is she somehow hearing echoes of reincarnation? 
the director, where Asethical has a previous film called Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives, and his Buddhist background informs a lot of the spiritual and surrealist aspects of his work. There surely is no better actor and collaborator for this sort of thing than Swinton, who is simply marvellous. There's a sequence near the end where the camera very gently zooms in on her at a kitchen table as she and we hear a soundscape of layered communications from somewhere else. And it is as if you're watching the Star Child sequence at the end of 2001 through the medium of a single actor's face. Extraordinary. If you want to be transported away from our everyday mundanity and into the inconceivable, go and see Memoria. You may find that you want to just sit there and watch it again, straight away. It's, um, it's, it's like a rumble from the core of the earth. Memoria is rated PG, but is easily the most grown-up of all the films I've talked about today. It opens across New Zealand in the most discriminating of venues this weekend. Somebody touch me. Somebody touch me. And that's our programme for this week. I was so tempted to play you something from the score of uh, Licorice Pizza to close the show, but realised that two Johnny Greenwoods in a row was probably overdoing it a bit. This is something a little bit different. Jessica Chastain, in character as Tammy Faye Baker, singing Somebody Touched Me, one of her gospel hits from the heyday of the Praise the Lord ministry and network. It's not immediately apparent here, but Chastain is doing an excellent singing impression of Tammy Faye, flawed only to the extent that she's actually singing a little better. You do get to make a comparison during the closing credits of the film. This week's edition of At The Movies was produced, written and edited by me, Dan Slevin. Simon Morris will be back from his holidays to host the show at the same time next week, and I trust you'll join him then. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.